Let's pray as we turn to uh, the Word. Father, we thank You for uh, this time. We thank You for Your Word, Your presence here. And we pray, Jesus, that You would speak to us through Your Word, that You would have Your way in us. Open our eyes to see all that You have for us and shape us by it. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. I grew up in a family that was breaking apart, that became a broken home. I remember as a kid just assuming that that's what life was like, that's what families were like, but I remember many, many occasions hearing my parents arguing and often late at night and my father in whatever he was feeling would, would leave the house, walk away, and I remember as a kid so often just looking out the window. I could, I could look out the window down our street from my bed, and I would sit there scared that he wouldn't come back. When I was 16, I, had, I remember the time when I, uh, I had a dog. We lived in the city, so I'd often take the dog. We didn't have dog parks back then, so I'd often take my dog in my car, and I'd drive to the well in Canal where I could huck a ball, and she could run for miles. And one day, my dad said, I want to come with you. And I remember as I was there, he said, said that he was leaving. I remember, even though things had been difficult and painful before, I remember how utterly devastating that was. And over the coming months and years, helping my dad move out of our family home, seeing him and my brothers move across the country, seeing their marriage come to an end was incredibly painful. Divorce used to be a problem seldom found in evangelical circles, but that is no longer true, hasn't been true for decades now. D.A. Carson writes this, To our shame, that is no longer the case. Our society, including many professing Christians, has rejected biblical conceptions of love and marriage. Sadly, divorce has touched the lives of many, many of us, both inside and outside the church. It's perhaps touched you as a child who grew up in a broken home, watching your parents get divorced. Perhaps it's been friends or family members, or perhaps it's even been you. You've experienced the pain and the devastation of divorce yourself. This morning, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're coming to a text where Jesus speaks to this matter, to divorce. And so we're going to give our attention there in a moment. But a few preliminary comments before we dive right in. First, these two verses that we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 31 and 32, are not the sum total of all that Jesus has to say about divorce, nor the sum total of all that Scriptures say about divorce. Now, obviously, uh, we, we can't cover everything exhaustively this morning, but I aim to be as thorough as I can be so that by the end of our time together, we will have as full an understanding regarding uh, what God thinks and desires when it comes to the topic of divorce. Secondly, though we may wish it to be otherwise, the matter of divorce is both complex and it has often been controversial. It's highly emotional. 
It's caused great division within the body of Christ and tremendous pain in the lives of many, both going through divorce and often in their experiences in the church afterwards because of divorce. And so it is with a certain amount of trepidation that I step into this topic, but I just want you to know that I want to do so as sensitively as I can while being faithful to God's Word, God's heart on this matter. And so I hope and pray that this uh, time together will be just the beginning. I welcome conversations uh, and further exploration uh, of this topic together. Uh, We are walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus announcing good news. Uh, The good news that in His coming, a whole new order is breaking into this world. That that the future is invading the present. That heaven is spilling into the world that we are living in. I have been contending throughout this series that, that when the good news takes hold of a person's life, something happens. And that something that happens is described for us by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That something that happens is a new creation, a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity, human beings who exhibit uh, new character traits, who live with new ambitions, who have new purpose, who, who begin to live differently, new uh, ways of living. The Sermon on the Mount, I've been contending, is not Jesus giving us a new law. It's not Jesus giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. It's not a, a set of rules. No, it it is rather Jesus painting a portrait for us of what life looks like when the gospel takes root, when the Holy Spirit is having His way in us. We're currently making our way through uh, the last portion of chapter 5, six sections of uh, of Jesus' sermon. And before, as as we came to that, we spent one week with an overview of all six of them wanted us not to miss the forest for the trees. And so we we took a a big bird's eye view because there are a number of truths and principles that we need to understand before we get into the weeds of these six sections that we're in right now. Uh, One, we need to understand that it's not just about the letter of the law, it's about the Spirit. Uh, Mere wooden compliance with the things that Jesus says here is to miss the point at so many places. Second, it's not just about our actions. It's not just about the externals. God cares about what's going on in our hearts and our minds. Third, this is not uh, intended by God to be oppressive, but freeing us, in fact, freeing us to be who we were created to be. Fourthly, it's not just negative, the things that we're not to do, but positively who we are to be, what we are to do. And then fifthly, none of this is an end in itself. God does not want our slavish or reluctant obedience. God wants our hearts. He wants us to know Him intimately and delight ourselves in Him, in submitting to Him, because that's what we were created for. And so we need to bear those things in mind as we walk through these six sections, because as I've been saying, these six sections are really, they're illustrations They're illustrations of what human life looks like when the gospel breaks in, when the gospel takes root, when the Spirit of God is having His way in us. This is not an exhaustive list. This is six ways, six areas of life that we see impacted by the good news that Jesus brings. The first 
centered on murder, and when we walked through that a number of weeks ago, we discovered that, that God's desire is far for far more than mere avoidance of homicide. That God, in fact, desires that gospelized people would be people, men and women, who diligently pursue right relationships with people. That even hatred and insults and name-calling misses the mark of what God has called us to. Uh, last time we were together, we looked at uh, the text centered on adultery. And in that passage, Jesus made it clear to us that merely refraining from acts of infidelity is a grossly inadequate understanding of His, his desire. His desire is for sexual faithfulness in our hearts and minds, and He calls us to do whatever is necessary to root lust and sexual sin out of our lives. What Jesus wants us to grasp here is the implications of the gospel how the gospel, the good news of grace, impacts and shapes our lives. This morning, that, uh, that illustration is about how it impacts marriage in regards to divorce. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read uh, verse 31 and 32 of Matthew 5. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a, her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want to do four things with you in the time that we have together. First, I want to speak to God's design for marriage. Secondly, to the debate going on about divorce in Jesus' day. Third, I want to look at the details of our text regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage. And then fourth, I want to think with you about the implications of the gospel for our lives in these regards. So first, the design of God for marriage. As I noted earlier, these two verses are not the sum total of all that, that Scriptures or Jesus has to say about divorce. In fact, in the New Testament, there are six passages that, that mention divorce. One just mentions it. That's in Matthew's Gospel earlier on when Joseph finds out that Mary, to whom he is pledged to be married, uh, is pregnant, and he decides that he will quietly divorce her. His assumption, as would be that of everyone else, would be that she has been sexually unfaithful. And so that's one mention. There's this mention in the Sermon on the Mount, and then Matthew 19. We're going to actually look at that. And there are three other places in the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, uh, Luke's Gospel, both mention it, similar passage to what we're looking at here, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, the second longer passage in Matthew, Matthew 19, uh, s- provides us with some important historical uh, context as we turn our attention to this matter. So I want to take a moment just to read a part of that. If you have Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9, here's what happens there. Jesus is interacting with some Pharisees. Some Pharisees came to him, that is to Jesus, to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. There are a number of important things that we need to recognize within this text. And one of those important things speaks to the first thing I want to speak to, and that is God's design for marriage. Here in Matthew 19, when questioned about divorce, Jesus speaks of first principles. He speaks of God's original intention, God's original design for marriage. He points the Pharisees and us as readers to the creation account. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Here is God's design for marriage. Uh, This is the way it was in the beginning. This is God's intention for marriage. Uh, A leaving and cleaving. Uh, A man and a woman will will choose to shift their loyalty. And this is so vitally important for a marriage that your loyalty shifts no longer to mom and dad, no longer to your family of origin, but your loyalty shifts to that other person, to the one you will commit yourself to. There is a leaving and putting someone else at the center of your life on the horizontal plane as far as human relationships. There is that, that, and the forming of a new unit. And then there is this cleaving, a, a pledging of your whole self, of your whole being, giving yourself to your wife or your husband, a, a bonding, a, a promise to stay, a, a commitment to be together, a covenanting before God. And then Jesus says, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus speaks of the sexual union of a a husband and wife in marriage. In sexual intercourse, the two become one by God's design. And and I spoke to this two weeks ago when we looked at what Jesus says about adultery and and lust and why God has has put a boundary around sexual expression. And and that boundary is a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That union is to be in marriage. And, and it's not because God is some cosmic killjoy. It's because sex has been designed to be, if you will, uh, marital glue. It is this profound uh, experience that bonds you. And in fact, I said that, that sexual intercourse is, is kind of like a sacrament. It, you, you are doing with your bodies what you are doing with the whole of your lives. You are giving yourself fully and exclusively and unreservedly to one another. In marriage, sex is is a covenant renewal mechanism. So God says, for this reason, there will be leaving and cleaving and becoming one. Before we can talk about divorce, before we can entertain what the Scriptures say about divorce, we need to grasp this. We, we need to grasp God's design, God's intention, God's desire that marriage be lasting, permanent, exclusive, that there be faithfulness within it. That's God's design for marriage. Let's turn secondly to the debate that was going on in Jesus' day. Uh, and I want us to understand this, that the question in Jesus' day was not 
can a person get a divorce? The, the answer to that was assumed to be yes, of course. The question in Jesus' day was, upon what grounds can a person get divorced? Listen to the question that Jesus has asked in Matthew 19 with the Pharisees. Verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Quick note, in the Jewish world, divorce was the prerogative only of the husband. In the Greco-Roman world, women could also divorce their husbands, but in the Jewish world, it was only the husbands, which is why this is stated this way. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It's, it's very helpful for us to understand at this point the, the historical reality on the ground in Jesus' day. There was a rabbinical debate going on. There were two schools of thought, two, two uh, to rabbis and, and, uh, and, and their teachings that were opposed. And so, on the one hand, there was a rabbi named Rabbi Shammai who, who believed that the sole grounds for divorce were some grave matrimonial offense. The other end was Rabbi Hillel who had a very uh, lax view. He believed that you could divorce for any reason, including such things. We have this uh, ancient documents that say this, you could divorce your wife if she burnt your food. Fairly radically different approaches or views when it came to upon what grounds can I uh, get a divorce. In asking Jesus their question here in Matthew 19, some of you are chuckling. There's not too much burnt food. Um, the Pharisees are essentially trying to figure out which side of the debate Jesus will land on. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Burnt toast. Is that enough? Does it need to be more serious? How serious? Where's the line? And, and who are you going to agree with, Jesus? Remember what I said earlier, that the, the question, that the issue for them was not whether or not you could Divorce, the issue was upon what grounds could you legitimately divorce? And he really asked, for any and every reason? Which brings us to a passage in Deuteronomy that the Pharisees point to. In response to what Jesus says to them, they, they, say, they say to him, Jesus says, hey, marriage is supposed to be permanent. This is how it was in the beginning. This is God's design. And then they say, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? The Deuteronomy text, and we can't wade into all the details there, but the Deuteronomy text assumes again that divorce will happen. And it stipulates that if it happens that the man was required to provide his, his wife with a certificate of divorce. Why? What, what's the deal with that certificate? And, and by the way, their question, why did Moses command? Moses didn't command them to divorce. He said, if you're divorcing, you need to do this. You need to give the certificate. A couple things need to be said about this mosaic provision, this certificate of divorce. First, the writing of that certificate of divorce was for the protection of the woman. It, it, it allowed that woman to remarry without facing the accusation of committing adultery. Right? To commit adultery, the, the penalty back then was to be stoned to death. And so, did you just lose me? Hello? There we go. I'm back. Where was I? Stoning. Uh, yeah, you, you, could, you could be stoned. And so this certificate provided protection for her. I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. Um, protection for her so she could remarry without being accused of committing adultery, right? She, here, I'm not, 
I'm not the husband of another man now. And so it was this form of protection. Craig Keener notes this in his book, And Marries Another. The very nature of this document was to free the wife to remarry. The husband's right to remarry was assumed. Secondly, we need to understand that this mosaic provision was a concession, not a command. Jesus says, Moses permitted uh, you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So, so divorce was a concession in the Old Testament. Divorce, it was a concession given because of human sinfulness, because of the hardness of our hearts, but divorce was never commanded and it was never part of God's design or His desire. Now, it's not insignificant that Jesus doesn't actually answer their question as far as the debate. He doesn't wade in and pick sides. Rather, He moves straight to God's design. He says, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on why you can divorce rather on, than on, on my design and desire when it comes to marriage. See, the, the fact that the Pharisees were fixed, fixated on figuring out the grounds upon which they could legitimately divorce demonstrated that they had already missed the point. Marriage was to be this exclusive, permanent bond. In marriage, God joined a man and a woman and made them one. And God's desire is that they not be separated. To be looking at reasons to justify ending that relationship flew in the face of God's design and God's heart. John Stott writes this, to be preoccupied with the grounds for divorce is to be guilty of the very Pharisaism which Jesus condemned. You see, obedience to Christ, life in light of the Gospel, is not about looking for lines and how close we can get. It's not looking for loopholes and cracks where we can try and wiggle through. And so when it comes to marriage, we need to grasp this truth that God desires faithfulness, that God desires that marriages be till death do you part. So that's the debate going on in Jesus' day. Let's wade into a few of the details of the text regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the text that we're looking at today, Jesus says this. I'm going to read verse 31-32 again. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Without question, Jesus opposes divorce. Divorce is a tragedy. It is an evil to be avoided at all costs. We need to see that. We, we need to feel that. Yet here in our text, we, we hear Jesus giving an exception. We saw that exception in Matthew 19 as well. It's, it's here and in Matthew 19. Luke and Mark don't include it. In both Mark and Luke, Jesus' statement comes across much more absolute. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery, which is obviously a bad thing. If a man marries a divorced woman, he commits adultery, bad thing. So Matthew, sorry, Mark and Luke, it's just this absolute statement. Here in Matthew, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does give this exception. What, what are we to make of that? What, what do we do with that? 
I, I want, if you were with us over the last couple uh, times that I've spoken, I want you to think with me about the two passages that we've looked at before this. The first was about we should not commit murder, but Jesus clarified that merely avoiding homicide is to miss the point, that He says, if you're angry at your brother or sister, you're already guilty. You stand under judgment. If you hurl names and insults, if you call a fool, someone a fool. Jesus speaks in this language of absolutes, right? And, and I said then, like, we know that those statements, that we need to hear them, we need to feel them, but we also recognize that that they are qualified because later on in the gospel, Jesus gets angry, and Jesus calls the religious leaders fools at one point. And so, so not all anger is ungodly, but the reality is for us as human beings, most of the time it is. And so we need to hear Jesus' statement and, and let it weigh on us. But we know that. And then in the passage that we looked at last where Jesus speaks about adultery and He says, if you're guilty of adultery already if you look at a woman lustfully or women, if you look at a man, if we, any of us, this goes for everyone, if you look with lust, you are already guilty of adultery. And then Jesus says what? He, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I made the point to you that you don't need both eyes. In fact, you don't need eyes at all to lust, right? Plucking out your eyes won't actually help. Cutting off your hands not going to take away lust. Jesus is making a point. He's, he's using hyperbole. He's making the point, go to whatever lengths are necessary to root this out of your life. So we need to bear in mind what we've encountered there. Here, clearly, Jesus wants to discourage divorce. Jesus is opposed to divorce. Divorce is not His plan. It is not His desire. But He recognizes that that in our fallenness, there will be exceptions. And here, he, He explicitly identifies an exception where a spouse commits sexual sin, sexually unfaithful, and and has so violated the marriage relationship that divorce simply recognizes what is already true. And and I want to say this, there are marriages that have survived an act of infidelity. There are marriages that have survived even an affair. Uh, But here Jesus recognizes the breaking that happens when there is sexual unfaithfulness. And, and New Testament scholar Craig Keener in his book suggests that perhaps what is in mind here where Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, that, that what is in mind is, is not, not to minimize the, the dreadful act of betrayal a spouse experiences when there's an act of infidelity, but he says this may point to a persistent pattern of behavior. Here's what he writes. He says, divorcing a perpetually unfaithful spouse does not dissolve a marriage but simply makes official that the unfaithful spouse has already dissolved it by repeatedly denying it in practice. That in those cases, divorce is simply acknowledging the reality of the brokenness of what God didn't want to break, but that it's broken. So Jesus provides us explicitly in in Matthew's account 
that exception. I think it's instructive and helpful for us to note that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul provides us with a second exception. And, and I want us to be careful. The, my, my goal is not to line up and, and go, okay, here's a list of all the reasons you can get divorced. That's to be wrongly focused. But Paul in 1 Corinthians is, is writing to a church of, of first-generation Christians. And he, he's, I'll just read it to you. If, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Paul is speaking to that situation where uh, maybe in, in a marriage, one spouse comes to faith in Jesus and the other spouse doesn't. And in some cases, he says, hey, if that unbeliever is happy to remain married to you, you need to remain married to them. I mean, if we are in Christ, we are called to marry another follower of Jesus. We are, we're called to do that, not to marry someone who does not know Jesus. But if you're not a Christian when you get married and, and then you come to faith and your spouse doesn't, Paul says that that's not a reason. Spiritual incompatibility at that point is not a valid reason for divorce unless the unbeliever is unwilling to live with you. If they abandon the marriage, then Paul says, then you're free. You're free. And, and again, we can talk about this later, but I think that freedom entails the assumption would have been free to remarry then. So in both these instances, both these explicit exceptions that we encounter in Scripture, in the case of a marriage being broken by a spouse being sexually unfaithful, and in the case of a marriage ending because an unbelieving spouse walks away, the innocent party would be free to remarry. Now, some of you might react to that, that language, innocent party. What are you talking about? It takes two to tangle. I'm not suggesting for a moment that anyone is sinlessly perfect. And yet there are many who have been divorced often against their own will, who have been deeply wounded because they have fought for their marriage and they have sought to make it work. They have sought to be faithful. But if their spouse has been perpetually unfaithful, if their spouse abandons them, they're not a believer and they walk away and there's nothing they can do. They're not perfect. We're not saying that, but they are the innocent party. The divorce isn't happening because of them. They resisted it. And so, when we think to that matter or the topic of remarriage, I, I, I just want to be sensitive. We, we want to be absolutely faithful to Jesus. And, and uh, you know, re remarriage through the Old Testament was the assumption. That was the certificate of divorce was for that. And, and so the, the point is simply this. I think Keener sums it up well. He writes this, Divorce is an evil to be avoided at all costs. And only when the salvation of the marriage is truly impossible is it valid. And the salvation of the marriage is impossible only if one party in the marriage has unilaterally decided to end it by seeking to leave or by acting adulterously. In such a case, divorce is the formal declaration of what is already true in fact. The marriage is broken. The guilty person is responsible for it. Again, please, I invite conversation. I tread lightly, but... I believe that's what God is saying here in this regard. 
So the fourth, the, the implications of the gospel for our lives in this matter. When we look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about divorce, we recognize that they are, are both hard and challenging. Unquestionably, God, uh, Jesus opposes divorce. Divorce is an evil to be avoided at all costs. It is contrary to God's design and God's desire. Now, I don't, I don't know where that leaves you who are here this morning, those who are with us online. Uh, divorce is a present reality in our world. Divorce has touched probably all our lives in some way, and, and perhaps for some of you, it's part of your story. So what now? What now? What do we do with these hard words of Jesus? And I want to remind you what this sermon is, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's not the old law cranked up on steroids. It's not a new set of rules. It is a picture of what our lives look like as the good news of God's grace takes root and begins to transform us. It's a picture of who we're becoming as the Holy Spirit has His way in us, giving us new character traits, uh, giving us new ambitions, leading us to live in new ways, gospelizing us. For those here this morning who are married, as the gospel takes root in us, we will be shaped. We will, we will be shaped increasingly to be men or women who are not looking for ways to break our marriage, not looking for ways to justify getting out of a difficult relationship. Instead, we will be those who are being moved to go to every length possible to preserve our marriage relationship, to nurture it, to build it, to fight for it. Because Jesus has fought for us. And we do this not because somehow by maintaining our marriage we in any way merit anything from God. He doesn't love us more because your marriage is intact. He doesn't accept us because we, we manage to avoid divorce. We do this out of grateful obedience. We do it because He is changing us. And, and, and that's one of the, the ways in which that gospel transformation is manifested. For those of us who are married, marriage will be uh, likely at least one of, if not the place where God works in you the most, shaping you, transforming you, exposing the ugly bits, exposing your self-centeredness. Anyone else recognize that in marriage? You don't have to nod. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, asks a profoundly important question. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? He's not suggesting that marriage does not have joy in it. That's God's intention that there be happiness and joy in marriage. But, but he's saying, what, what if that's not the primary goal? What if God's primary goal is to use marriage to shape you, to be the man, to be the woman that He is creating you to be? What, what if that's his greatest intention? And that, that means when, when things get hard in your marriage and you're tempted to throw in the towel and you go, like, I just, I want out. I made the wrong decision, obviously. Maybe you need to stop and go, hang on. Maybe this is exactly where God wants me. In fact, not maybe. It's where he wants you. He wants to shape you. He wants to transform you. Let me speak for a moment to any of you who are divorced. I want to say this, and I want you to hear this. You are not excluded from the kingdom of heaven because you are divorced. 
You're, you're not second class because you're divorced. The good news for all of us is that through faith in Jesus, all our sins were borne by Christ. That through faith in Jesus, we are washed and cleansed and clothed with His perfection. So, whether you're an innocent party who is divorced against your will, or perhaps you bear guilt in it and you recognize that, you're not excluded. Christ came for those who were broken. He calls us to repent and to believe, to, to put our faith in Him, to put our faith in what He accomplished at the cross. The gospel, the good news, is a message of grace. Grace through which we're forgiven, grace through which we are transformed, grace that it can accomplish far, far more than we could ever imagine. There is a great story that I wish we had time, I'd share it by video. Jeff and Cheryl Scruggs. They were a couple, they fell in love, had a couple girls. After a number of years, through a number of circumstances, Cheryl ended up having an affair. She became very cold to her husband Jeff, and she ended up leaving him and filing for divorce. He was devastated. And in their story, she shares how she came, came to know Jesus. She came to know Jesus, and she began to reach out to Jeff. And, and he, he was so hurt, he wanted nothing to do with it. But over time, God worked in him. And seven years after they were divorced, they, they were remarried. We worship a God who rebuilds broken things, whose desire is for faithfulness. Oswald Chambers writes this, There is no circumstance so dark and complicated, no life so twisted, that he cannot put it right. Divorce is a great evil, but Jesus is a great forgiver. Entrance into the kingdom is not earned or achieved by us getting everything right. It is a gift purchased and given to us by Jesus through His shed blood, a gift purchased on the cross. And we need to remember how Jesus begins this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come with empty hands. Those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. That they have nothing to give. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how this all begins. That's the, that's the place where it starts. It's, that's how we enter into the kingdom. Is coming to Jesus saying, I got nothing. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Yes, we are called to be faithful. Yes, we are called to be faithful in all of life. And those of us who are married are called to be faithful in marriage. We're called to faithfulness because He is faithful. And we are His image bearers. We are to reflect His likeness. And Jesus, who is a great forgiver, is also, praise God, a great restorer of broken things a great restorer of broken relationships, a great empowerer changing us and enabling us to live out what He calls us to, a great bringer of hope. No matter your story, no matter the details of what you've walked through or experiencing, my prayer this morning is that you and I would look to Jesus, that we would look long 
and we would look hard, and that we would invite Him to have His way in us. And we invite Him to have His way in our lives to shape us by the good news, by the gospel, for His glory and our joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for Your gift of redemption. Jesus, we, we want to confess our brokenness and our sin and rest in and rejoice in Your forgiveness. And Jesus, we pray that You would transform us, that You would show each of us in whatever circumstance, whether related to marriage and divorce or something else, that You would show us what faithfulness looks like, and that You would empower us by Your Spirit to live as gospelized men and women. Lord Jesus, not in order to merit anything from You, but because in You we have Your life. We pray this in Your name. Amen.